Today I will be reading from Isaiah 9, 1-7. You can follow along in your Bible or on screen as I read the passage aloud for us. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's word. All right, so we are continuing our Advent series this morning, Jesus in Strange Places. Now, Advent is a special time in the church calendar where we remember Christ's arrival, Christ will come again, and his continuing arrival in our life. Now, for me, most of my life, Advent was chocolate calendars counting down to Christmas. Like, it's only been as an adult that I've really grasped the significance of this time of year, chance for deeper engagement with God. Now, if you're new here, if you don't know me very well, you might be sitting in your pew thinking, oh, Ruthie, she's such a contemplative soul. Some of you laughed there, and I'm not going to take offense at that. <laughs> she's such a contemplative soul. She must just love the waiting of Advent and the slower-paced activities of the season. Well, I'm going to let you into a secret. My favorite holiday movie is Die Hard. So that should tell you everything you need to know about my natural tendencies. I like life fast and explosive. I'm not naturally inclined to like the slower rhythms of Advent. Like why all this waiting and slowing down? Let's just get to Christmas, let's get to the celebration. But I have learned that there is something really valuable about this Advent season. Here's one of the things that is really special for me. Advent is about being radically honest. It's, it's not about pretense or fluff or covering things up. It is the time of the year dedicated in the church holiday where we get to say, anyone else feel like it's hard to be human? Like, it's just difficult. Like, I'm waiting on God for some stuff. I'm, I'm actually finding this adulting thing quite hard. Like, Advent gives us the permission to name the pain and the struggle. And for someone like me that likes to be pretty direct in life, I love this about Advent. It's like a peek behind the curtain to say, life can be really hard, right? And we're not in it alone. So I want to raise a question this morning, and then I'm going to pray for us. Regardless of your experience with Advent, whether you have spent a lot of time in Advent practices or whether this is new for you, I want to pose a question, and that question is, what if God has more for you than ever before this Advent season? 
Whether you feel like you've done so many Advents, you're like, Ruthie, I've been in the church 40 years, I've done Advent every year. Or whether you're like, this is my first night, I don't really know what I'm doing. I want us to sit with the possibility that God has more for you this Advent season than you could imagine. That he wants to meet with you. That he wants you to engage with him in deeper ways. And as we just sit with that for a moment here, I'm gonna pray for us. But I just want you to allow that question just to expand your expectation this morning, what you think is possible this morning, how God might wanna meet you this morning. So let's just pray. Lord, I thank you that you're always inviting us into a deeper place of faith and possibility. There is always more, more of you, more of your presence, more of experiencing you, God. More grace, more forgiveness, more healing, more breakthrough, there's always more. And Lord, sometimes we just settle and say, well, this is kind of my experience with Advent, or this is how I'm feeling this time of year. And Lord, I pray that you would increase our expectation of what you can do in our lives this Advent season. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Fleming Rutledge is a pastor and an author based in New York City. She's spoken and written extensively about Advent. She says this, Advent begins in the dark and moves toward the light. But the season should not move too quickly or too glibly, lest we fail to acknowledge the depth of the darkness. The series that we're in, Jesus in Strange Places, as I sat with that phrase, I considered, what is a strange place that God meets us in? And you see, darkness is a strange place. Darkness is a key theme of Advent. It may occur to you as like, well, church, why, why is that darkness? How can that be a theme of this season? I mean, after all, isn't God light? Aren't we supposed to live in the light and embrace the light? Like, how can darkness be a theme of Advent? And if you find yourself conscious of that wrestle this morning, I wanna invite you to consider expanding your theology Because though we're correcting saying that God is light, we'd also be amiss to think that that's the only place that God can be found. If you open up your Bible, and certainly an NIV version, you're gonna find that darkness is the 18th word in the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters. Observe God's relationship with darkness here. He doesn't banish it or reject it. He doesn't remove it from the human experience. There's some kind of positive relationship with darkness. Psalm 139 says that even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. God isn't afraid of the darkness. He's not absent from it. I mean, I could go on. As I did a study over the last few weeks of darkness, if you look in Genesis 15, when God is making this crucial covenant with Abraham for the whole future of his people that's gonna shape the Old Testament story, it literally says that a thick darkness comes upon Abraham. In Psalm 18, we find the psalmist calling out to God for help, and God responds, and it says that he made darkness his covering. Darkness is a theme of scripture, it's a theme of Advent, and it's also a theme of our life. When I use the word darkness this morning, I want to just give a little definition to that. Naturally, we all encounter like literal darkness every night, right, especially this time of year. But there's also a metaphorical darkness that can invade our lives. Darkness can be an imagery for things that feel painful or heavy or confusing and sad. 
things that we might refer to as the shadows of our life. I wonder where you're feeling the darkness in your life this morning. Maybe there's a grief around the way that life has gone. Maybe it's not what you expected this year, that relationship. You're not really where you wanna be, a lost job, some kind of strained family connection. Maybe you're facing kind of the cheeriness of the holidays and isn't the most wonderful time of the year and you're sitting at home thinking, no, it's not the most wonderful time of the year. Actually, Christmas is reminding me of all the people that I miss and all the pain and all the sadness. There's a grief that can happen in this time of year. Maybe the darkness that you're wrestling with is an uncertainty. You're looking into 2024 and you're thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing with my life. I had a plan and it kind of went off course and now I'm terrified. I gotta make some decisions, I'm not sure what's next. Or maybe you have deep faith questions for God. Maybe you're wrestling with him, you've got unmet dreams in your heart, you're second guessing, you feel distance from God. Maybe you feel lonely this time of the year. Maybe you're dealing with sickness, fear of failure, regret. There's a myriad of examples of how darkness could look in our life. But church, if darkness were merely synonymous with hardship, difficulty, and weight in our lives, we'd only be seeing half the picture. Let me suggest something different today. The reason darkness is a prevalent theme in Advent isn't solely to contrast the light. I'd like to suggest that darkness itself holds beauty, holiness, and serves as a doorway to hope because God resides within it. Even amidst the most tragic and desperate moments, beauty, holiness, and redemption can emerge. I was scrolling Instagram the other day, and I feel like, how many times have I said that in a sermon? I don't even know. I'm not always on Instagram, I promise. Um, I was scrolling Instagram, and one of those videos that just kind of pops up, and it was a video of a bride and the groom was surprising her on her wedding day. And so you're naturally kind of lured in like, ooh, what's the surprise? So you kind of keep watching. And the surprise was that she had lost her son at some point in her life and donated his organs. And on their wedding day, the groom had found the recipient of those organs and brought him to the wedding and they had this encounter. It's beautiful, emotional, like out of something so devastating, something so beautiful emerged. See, sometimes we might look at the difficulties or the darkness of life, we might call out, well, this is silver lining, or looking on the bright side. Something good could come from that, but I think that those phrases fall short of the depth and nuance of our darkness and how God is at work in it. So this morning I wanna unpack three ways that God can be found in our darkness. Number one, God finds us in our darkness. <clears throat> Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, a prison cell like this is a good analogy for Advent. One waits, hopes, does this or that, ultimately negligible things. The door is locked, can be only opened from the outside. Bonhoeffer wrote this letter, actually from a prison cell that he was thrown into by the Nazis in 1943. And this quote, conveys a sense of helplessness that I believe we're supposed to lean into during the Advent season. The truth is we cannot rescue ourselves. When we reflect on the birth of Christ, we observe a world that cannot rescue itself. Oppression and darkness and struggle, really no hope, waiting, waiting, waiting on God. And into this darkness, 
Christ comes to find us. I mean, the very literal nature of Christ's birth is surrounded by darkness. The shepherds gather on the hills in the dark night, interrupted by angels. The Magi travel at night following the glimmer of light in the sky. Dreams and nighttime visions can be traced through the story. You see, God came into the shadows and the darkness. He didn't arrive on a summer's day with the warm glow on his baby skin. It was dark, it was night, it was difficult. The Christ child was born into our darkness. So let's glance at Isaiah 9 that we read this morning. This is a super familiar Advent passage. In fact, someone asked me yesterday, what are you preaching on? I said, Isaiah 9, like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like traditional Advent. But I wonder if we really understand it. It it kicks off with, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Now, anytime we walk in on a conversation and someone says, nevertheless, it's sort of like, however, we know that something happened previously. And if we look back in Isaiah 8, we're gonna see a little bit of, kind of, we're gonna get a little understanding of what's going on. You see, in the book of Isaiah, there's this constant thread of like God's people have turned away from him. I mean, actually, if you read the very end of chapter eight, it gets super dark. Like God's people are going to mediums and seeking out like wisdom and guidance from all these dark places. And what that has resulted in is distress and darkness and fearful gloom. That's what it says at the end of chapter eight. Now, you know, if I bumped into you on a Sunday morning and you said, Ruthie, how you doing? And I said, well, you know, it's been a season of distress, darkness, fearful gloom, and utter darkness. You? Like, we would all be like, oh, sounds awful. (laughs) That is exactly what Isaiah is trying to do here. He's like, I want you to know just how dark this was. The people were so far from God. They had turned their hearts away. So Isaiah is speaking the words of God into this significantly dark moment. I wonder if you know that kind of darkness. I mean, that deep, deep darkness. I remember after I had my first child and I experienced postpartum depression, oh man, I spiraled into that deep, deep darkness. I think one of the things that's so hard about that is it's supposed to be this really joyful thing, right? Having a baby. And I remember sitting there looking at my child having no desire to hold him whatsoever, not feeling the joy, not feeling the celebration, spiraling, because what happens is when we get into the darkness, we feel shame about the darkness. What's wrong with me? Come on, Ruthie, muster it up, figure this out. So that kind of utter darkness took a hold. I remember the same kind of darkness when I experienced a miscarriage of my second child. Just hopelessness, just looking around me and feeling like light was everywhere else, but I was stuck in this deeply dark place. That's the kind of darkness. It's the darkness feels like a prison that only can be opened from the outside. And this is who Isaiah is writing to when he writes this beautiful Advent traditional message, dark, dark times. And then he goes on to say something strange, which I'm gonna be honest with you, I've been in the church 42 years and I've never paid attention to this. But as I was reading it, I was like, what what is that about? And Isaiah goes on to say, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. 
I mean, what on earth is Zebulun and Naphtali? This is like a Jeopardy question. For $400, who can tell me, right? Like, it's just like, oh, weird, Ruthie, we're really digging deep this morning. Well, yeah. So I'm gonna give you just a quick Old Testament dive. Zebulun and Naphtali were actually two of the 12 sons of Jacob, meaning they were brothers to Joseph. So when Jacob distributed the land of the Hebrew people, these two sons were given areas of land in the very north of Israel. Up there in that northern place, there was a few things going on that we need to know. Number one, again, not obedient to God. Number two, because they were kind of in the northern part of the land, very susceptible to like pagan ideas, pagan gods turned their hearts away. And then number three, when conquering forces came, which they did, where did they land first? In the northern tip of Israel and moved down. You see, Zebulun and Naphtali were dark places. But then Isaiah goes on to say, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. What is this about? Well, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you're like, ooh, Galilee, Jordan, Jesus, bing, 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 you're exactly right. These things, these places are found in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why does this matter? What Isaiah is saying is that God chose the darkest most pagan areas of all of Israel. He stuck a pin in it and he said, that is where my son is gonna come. He could have chosen anywhere. He could have chosen Jerusalem, but he didn't. He chose this part of the land that had turned away. It was dark. There was a huge Gentile population. And God said, that's where I'm gonna go. You see, we have a God that runs towards darkness. He could have picked anywhere. He's not thinking about, well, what's gonna look good for me? Or where do I wanna raise my only son? He like dives right into the darkness and he says, yeah, this is where I want the Messiah to come and do his greatest ministry. Church, I wanna ask a question today. What if God is running towards your darkness? What if he's looking across the landscape of your life, your history, your relationships, your career, your finances? What if he's looking for the darkest place? a place of embarrassment and shame and regret, sadness, the place that you just don't ever talk about, the failure that you just feel like, let's tuck that away. Don't want people to know this piece. What if he's coming to that place to find you? I'd like to suggest, church, that the place of our greatest darkness is the place where God wants to do his greatest ministry. That place that feels so dark and hopeless. I just, as I'm preaching this, I just feel like I have a word for somebody that when I read career, I feel like I should also add or lack of. I feel like there may be some, some folks here today and you're like, what career? And there's a word for you this morning. God wants to meet us in those places we feel embarrassed about. We feel ashamed to tell people about. And in those places, he doesn't just want to acknowledge them and say, yeah, okay, cool, thanks for sharing. He wants to do his greatest ministry. What was the ministry of Jesus? Healing, deliverance, good news to the poor. God is wanting to speak good news to your darkness this morning. You see, the prison might feel locked today and the circumstance may seem hopeless, and that situation might, be, might look unredeemable, but what if someone came on the outside? What if Jesus came and opened that door? 
You see, because when Jesus finds us in the darkness, it means we're not abandoned to it. It becomes this beautiful, redemptive, hope-filled place. We see this behavior of God, even right back in Exodus, coming to find his people in darkness. When Israel is enslaved in Egypt for more than 400 years, the scripture says in Exodus 3, the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Notice here, God hears, God sees, God comes. They could not save themselves. They could not rescue themselves. They needed the prison door to be opened, but you see, our God is an opener of prison doors. But here's our problem. I mean, imagine being in a prison, someone opens the door and says, let's go. No, 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 it's too dark in here. Don't look in. Don't, you're not gonna like what you see here. I deserve to be here. This is too good to be true, this freedom. You can't possibly want this mess. This is sometimes how we respond to God. When he comes into our life in moments like this morning and he says, that, that dark place, I wanna put my finger on that. And we're like, no, 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 close the door, don't look. You're not gonna like this, Jesus. You're not gonna want this. You don't know how broken it is. You don't know how embarrassed I am. You don't know the depths of shame that I feel. That's how many of us relate to God. But he's offering us his presence this morning. You see, God loves you too much to abandon you to the darkness, to let that story forever define you or shape you or haunt you. God loves to come in the darkness. He did it in Exodus. He did it as a baby. And he's doing it right now today. God is coming to find you in the dark. Second point, God is with us in the dark. You see, he doesn't just come to find us and then say, quick, 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 let's get out of here, it's awful, I'm just, I hate being here. He's actually with us in the dark. God with us, that's a very Advent-y term. I remember growing up, we would get Christmas cards and they would have like beautiful little manger scenes that would say, God with us. And it kind of becomes almost a little too familiar, like what does that even mean? I wanna glance at something very specific in Exodus today to kind of just give us a little reframe, maybe a fresh look. See, from Exodus 3 to 11, God is at work with Moses to get his people free, right? There's all the plagues that are happening. Pharaoh says yes, Pharaoh says no, all of those shenanigans. Then in chapter 12, the Hebrew people are about to leave. They're this first Passover that occurs because God's like, I'm gonna come. And the firstborn son of the Egyptians, that's gonna be it. But in this moment, I'm gonna set you free. This is gonna be your moment. Run for your lives, like head out. And I think, I just wanna pause there because I think sometimes with the story, we all know how it ends. So we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. They gathered up their stuff and they headed out and then they got to the Red Sea and God did a miracle, woohoo. But I want us just pause for a moment and imagine what that night was like. All of the plagues that have been happening, it's like the end of slavery for them. They know they're on the cusp of this breakthrough and yet, what is gonna happen? Like, what do we take with us? Are the kids okay? How, how do we pack up? How do we get going? 
remember when my husband and I had our, our first son, and he was about a one-year-old, we lived in a, an apartment in Soma. And maybe some of you have experienced some of this, but we lived in one of those apartments where we would regularly experience middle-of-the-night fire alarms when there was no fires. Anyone else experienced that in San Francisco? And so what would happen is the alarm would go off and we'd be like, oh my gosh, is there actually a fire? You never really knew. So we would bundle our one-year-old into like an ergo and wrap in a blanket and grab her through things and we'd head down the stairs, of course not the elevator because who knows, and we'd stand out on the street looking up at the building thinking, are we good, what's going on? And all of those scenarios ended up being fine. But I remember the uncertainty that I felt as a parent, as a human, of just like, okay, what's gonna happen? Is my kid okay? Do we have what we need? There's just the humanness about this story that sometimes we miss. And I imagine them fleeing Egypt, wondering, is Pharaoh gonna change his mind and come after us? Which of course we know he did. But there's a small passage in there that I've never noticed before in Exodus 12. It says, now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions, basically his people, left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites had to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. Four words, the Lord kept vigil. I want us just to double click on that this morning as we think about God with us. What's a vigil? It's a watch or a period of watchful attention maintained at night or at other times. When my kids were younger and they were sick, sometimes I would keep vigil over them. You know, like you, you kind of be in the room like watching them breathing just to make sure that they were okay. Maybe you've sat by the bedside of a loved one, a parent, and done similar things. You see, we watch over what we care about. God's people are on the run from an evil oppressor. They're fleeing in the night. They're wondering, is Pharaoh gonna hunt us down? Yes, he will. They are no army. They are all alone. And yet, who do they have? They have the Lord who is keeping vigil. God with us, it can feel so trite, but I want you to imagine this this morning, church. We have a God that keeps the night shift. We have a God that watches over our life in the darkest moments. Imagining God just watching over his people as they fled. Scripture tells us in Psalm 121 that he neither slumbers nor sleeps. I wonder if anybody needs this word today where you feel like something so heavy, so anxiety-inducing, so sad, and you're not sleeping. Maybe you know this time of year wreaks havoc with your emotions. Maybe you're facing one more party alone. You just can't. Maybe a loved one is sick, or you've got a kid facing challenges. Maybe you're looking at 2024 wondering, what the heck am I gonna do with my life? All of that makes night times hard to face. Anxiety kicks in, sleepless nights, feeling like you're strategizing and it's all on my shoulders and my family's looking to me. Church, I wanna remind us that we have a God who stands vigil over our life. That whisper you hear in the midnight hour, that's God standing vigil. What's that warmth you, you feel as you sing carols? That's God standing vigil. That glimmer of hope, that provision at the 11th hour, that gift, that testimony, that moment you start believing maybe something can change. That is God standing vigil over your life. 
He's not just with us in the victory and the success and the applause and the celebration and the victory lap. He's with you when you cry so loud you hope your roommates can't hear. He's with you in loneliness when the person you had a great connection with ghosts you or calls it off. He's with you when you're fired. He's with you when you swipe your debit card at the grocery store and you just pray that there is enough money to pay the bill. He's with you when you're fighting with your partner about one more disappointment. He's with you when you're backed into a corner by sickness or betrayal. Church, I need you to know that God will watch over your life. He is standing vigil when it feels like the whole world is against you, when you feel like you can't fight one more battle, when you're trying to muster up the energy for a new year. God stands vigil, God stands watch, and God is with us in our darkness. tell you, when I sat with that this last couple of weeks, I was like, this means something to me. Suddenly, God with us wasn't a trite word on a Christmas card. It was like, I know that he is standing watch over my life. Jeremiah says, I'm watching, this is God speaking, I'm watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Imagine that. God is watching over our life, watching over his word, watching over his plans and purposes to make sure they come to completion. This is the kind of God we have with us. And number three this morning, God is at work in us in the darkness. See, God's not just watching over us. He's at work in us and for us. Joan Chichester wrote a book called Uncommon Gratitude, and she says, darkness deserves gratitude. It's the hallelujah point at which we learn to understand that all growth does not take place in the sunlight. Then we come to understand that God is at work in our lives even when we believe that nothing whatsoever is going on. I'm guessing for most of us, we don't feel a ton of gratitude about the darkness in our life. But I think there is a place, especially during Advent, for us to embrace both lament and gratitude because God is at work in the dark. One of my favorite quotes is from Barbara Brown Taylor, and she says, new life starts in the dark. Whether it's a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, it starts in the dark. You see, sometimes we think darkness is something I just have to survive and get through and solve and figure out, but perhaps there is God's intentionality in the midst of our darkness. As I reflect on the examples I shared earlier about postpartum depression and miscarriage, I can see how God found me. I can see how he was with me and how he was working in me. You see, here's the thing. As I look at those seasons, I feel like there was a wasted season. I was unmotivated, disconnected, absent from relationships, struggling, questioning, crying a lot. But with a spiritual perspective, with God's eyes, I can see that those seasons that felt like a waste for me were not a waste because God doesn't waste anything. He doesn't waste our darkness. He's not in the business of wasting our pain, 
our struggle, our confusion. He comes to find us in it, to be with us in it, and he will use it to shape us and grow us and show his love to the world. And it doesn't matter how long ago it happened. And it doesn't matter if you understand. And it doesn't matter if you feel fully healed. God won't waste your darkness. He doesn't write off years as a waste. He doesn't forget our story. There's no circumstance or situation he can't redeem, restore, and renew. Advent is the time that we remind our souls, God doesn't waste our darkness. We don't know how to navigate it, but God is with us in it. He won't waste it. See, some of us need to hear this this morning because we're looking at a a relationship, a season, a disappointment. We're like, what a waste. I wasted so much of my life on that. Oh, I can't get those years back. I can't get those months back. I can't get that time back. God won't waste that season, I promise you. God will use that season in your life to make you into the person that he has designed you to be. Mark Batterson says, testimony is prophecy. What he means by that is, when we have a testimony of what God's done, it is a prophecy that he can do it again. If he's done it once, he can do it again for you. If he's done it for them, he can do it for you. Church, I wanna encourage you. God won't waste your darkness. That thing that was your prison will become your testimony. That place that you were like, I can't get out of here by myself. One day you'll be standing up and saying, that became the stage. That became the platform of God's glory because that is what God does in our life. I was in a conversation recently with some ladies and we were all talking about Advent and kind of the mixed feelings of this season. And we were saying like, well, wouldn't waiting just be easier if we knew that thing was gonna come? Yeah, I think we could all agree that we feel like we could hang in with the waiting if the job was gonna come or the relationship was promised or the answered prayer if we knew for sure. But as I reflected on it, I was thinking about how we're not waiting on a thing. That's not what Advent is about. See, Advent is not about the thing we're waiting for. It's about who we're waiting on. It's not about that thing. Those things matter to God, and I wanna say that. They matter, and they're important. But this time of year when we wait and we sit in the darkness, what breaks the darkness is not the arrival of the thing, it's the light of the world. He is the one that we're waiting on. The beautiful passage in Isaiah goes on to say, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Church, Advent may start in the dark, but it doesn't end there. It ends in the light. In the New Testament, we read that the the light of the world has come and the darkness cannot overcome it. This is what we lean into. We recognize the darkness, we name it, we experience God in it, and we know that we are heading towards the light. God will meet you, but he won't leave you there. The light is coming. We can trust him. That's the end of the story.